It is indeed good to be back, everybody. Far Middle, episode 109. We first air on June 21st, and if you are listening that first day of broadcast for this episode, it isn't just the first day of the rest of your life, but it's also the first day of summer. Finally. Love it. June 21st, the start of summer. That's also the summer solstice, which means it's the longest period of daylight in the year for the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm always intrigued by how we are in the midst of the start of a glorious summer and then down under, they're staring at the gates of winter with the shortest period of daylight for their year. But you know, our turn will come before we know it, sure enough. And a belated Happy Father's Day to all you dads. I trust it was a good and enjoyable one. It was for me. And for you grammar snobs, note that Father's Day uses the singular possessive. It's father and then apostrophe and then the S. Same convention for Mother's Day, of course. I always get tripped up by that. Okay, so sports dedication time. Now, those of you who are constant listeners, you know how we love to make connections between topics within each episode. And episode 109 is no exception. We're going with a dedication that offers, I think, a multitude of connections. So first, this episode airs, as I said, on June 21st. That's the first day of the airing, and that is also the first day of summer. The next day, June 22nd, marks the birthday of someone who ended up becoming what I believe to be one of the most interesting superstars in collegiate and professional sports history. Now, the second connection, his trajectory to stardom, it started with a very close relationship he had with his father, who drove this person to excel at his sport, which connects nicely to coming off of another Father's Day. Maybe uh, we can consider this a father-son combination dedication in honor of Father's Day. And then another connection, the superstar, the son, was born in western Pennsylvania, which is where his famous dad was also from. And specifically, they were from the mill town of Aliquippa, which is most famous with residents who became football greats. So you had Mike Ditka and Darrell Rivas and Ty Law. They are all from Aliquippa, and they are all in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, Tony Dorsett as well. He's sort of from Aliquippa. He played right down the road in next door, Hopewell. But our dedication subject was not a football player. He was a basketball player, one of the most dynamic ever, a phenom in high school and college and the pros, and he had a cool nickname to go with it. Our dedication for episode 109 is to Pistol Pete Maravich. And I'm going to start with his dad, Press Maravich. Now, Press was his nickname given to him as a kid when he was a paperboy for one of the major newspapers in the Pittsburgh area back in the day, the Pittsburgh Press. And guess who else was a paperboy for the Pittsburgh Press when he was a kid? Yours truly, but no cool handle for me, just Nick. Now, Press was a college basketball coach phenom, of course. Um, his first job was at West Virginia Wesleyan. He then jumped to Clemson in 1956, and in the early 60s, he went to NC State as an assistant to coach Everett Case. And then Maravich took over the head coaching duties at NC State when Case retired due to health issues. Maravich then left for LSU in 1966, where he ended up coaching his son, Pete. Now, cool story about how that uh, recruiting process went between father and son, and it sort of gives you, I think, a sense for Press's intensity. Upon offering the LSU scholarship to Pete, Press told his son that if you don't sign this, don't ever come to my house again. Well, Pete signed it, and he went to LSU to play for his dad, even though he originally wanted to play at West Virginia. And legend has it to seal the deal, Press agreed to buy Pete a car. 
I don't know if that's an NCAA infraction or not, if it's your dad. By the way, um, you might be wondering how Pete got his nickname Pistol. He got it in high school where people noticed his habit of shooting the ball from the side as if holding a revolver. Now, Pete Maravich dominated the collegiate game at LSU. There's no other better way to describe it. Um, back then, you couldn't play with upperclassmen your freshman year, so he only played three seasons with the varsity, so to speak, at LSU. But he averaged over 44 points per game and led the NCAA in scoring each of his three seasons. Not too shabby. And many consider Pete Maravich to be the best collegiate player ever. They point to his stats, but they also point to two other factors that he didn't have the benefit of besides not being allowed to play his freshman year. So first, he had no three-point line to shoot from. And if he would have, his point totals would have been even more astronomical. Second, there was no shot clock. And no shot clock meant a slower game and, of course, less shots and scoring. You put a shot clock in and Maravich's numbers would have been bumped even higher. Now, his NBA career, I always found it sort of interesting. It had a lot of ups and downs. He started with Atlanta, but it wasn't a good fit. Um, he did well at New Orleans and then Utah when the franchise moved the Jazz. And he ended his career with the Celtics, actually. And he played with a rookie at the end of his career by the name of Larry Bird, that rookie. Pretty cool. Uh, he averaged over 24 points per game for his NBA career and ended up in the Hall of Fame. And Maravich had his career ended due to bad knees. You know, how many times have we said that, you know, bad knees ending careers or great careers on prior far middle dedications? Um, he became, Maravich did a little eccentric after retiring. He was a recluse for a while. He became a born-again Christian after that. And he died young. He died at age 40 from heart failure during a pickup uh, hoops game. Turned out that he was born with a heart defect. But when on the court, Pistol Pete represented one of the brightest of shining lights to ever dribble a basketball. Episode 109 goes to Pistol Pete Maravich and, as a Father's Day bonus, his dad, Press. Let's be off and running with connections, much like Maravich running the hardwood floor during his prime. Now, I told you Pistol Pete got the nickname from his shooting style. We might apply the same nickname to the Chinese Communist Party and China itself these days. Because China and the CCP have a geopolitical gun aimed at the heads of the U.S., the EU, and the G7. And we gave them the gun with climate change policies, and we loaded that gun for them with mandates in the said climate change policies. And then we cocked the trigger for the CCP by attacking and shutting down our domestic energy industries. And then we helped place the gun to our own heads in the West with allowing China to circumvent tariffs and environmental standards and trade laws when making our batteries, wind turbines, and solar panels. Well, now it turns out the elite that constitute the G7 bureaucracy, they're waking up to the pressure of the gun aimed at the head. The G7 elite met in Japan about a month ago and issued some tough talk. You see, the West is now concerned about China's increasing use of what China critics reference as economic coercion when China does not get its way. Basically, China will stop exporting goods to a nation if that nation doesn't do China's bidding. A recent example was the halting of rare earth mineral exports to Japan. Those are the same rare earths needed to make climate change policies happen, by the way, because rare earths are needed for all those windmills and solar panels and electric vehicles. But uh, that's, that halting of the export of rare earths to Japan, that was over a boating collision. And China will stop buying goods from nations if they stop towing the Chinese line on certain matters. Now, not coincidentally, China's so-called economic coercion fits quite nicely with its Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. The BRI, sometimes referenced as the New Silk Road, 
is one of the most ambitious infrastructure projects ever, and it's the brainchild of President Xi, and the program creates a portfolio of development and investment projects spanning the globe. It was originally designed to link Asia and Europe through physical infrastructure, but since inception, the efforts expanded to now include Africa and Latin America, which happen to be where the majority of minerals and materials for the mandated energy transition of the West are going to be found. Now, the BRI, or New Silk Road, significantly broadens China economic and political influence, which is exactly as it was designed. The G7 is waking up to a three-part nightmare. Part one is China's Belt and Road Initiative campaign, where you're setting up physical infrastructure and economic ties all around the world. That's a global supply chain in the truest form. Part two is China's using of the BRI as leverage to gain geopolitical advantage. So you recognize Taiwan? No BRI investment for you. You don't recognize our claim to the South China Sea? No Silk Road port for you. Question us on Xinjiang genocide? No export of rare earths for you. You get the idea. Heck, even the naive G7 elite are getting the idea. But part three of this nightmare is the insanity of the West. Parts one and two, they're bad enough, but one can't control China. Part three of the nightmare for the West is 100% self-induced. Leftists and extreme environmentalists, many of who are quite sympathetic to China and are avowed socialists or communists, they convince policymakers that there is a code red for humanity, that we have to act now, and then the myth-making starts. The only way to act is to destroy the domestic energy industries in places like the EU and the United States and Canada because they're drastically changing the climate. And then the answer mandates requires replacing what the domestic energy industries once provided in the forms of horsepower and BTUs and kilowatt hours with forms of energy that are falsely advertised as zero carbon and renewable and sustainable wind, solar, and electric vehicles. Yet the scientific reality is that these forms of energy at scale, they're costly, they're unreliable, they're intermittent, they have massive carbon footprints, and they come with human rights abuses. And they're controlled globally by China. So how does this nightmare play out? China seizes control of the physical supply chains for wind, solar, batteries, with its BRI or New Silk Road campaign. Then it uses that leverage to reward behavior and actions from nations consistent with what China wants, and it will punish behaviors and actions from nations that China does not desire, and then we willingly cede our energy independence to China in exchange for dependency on the CCP for our power and transportation sectors. Now, what could possibly happen here, constant listeners? That's right, an outright nightmare. China wants Taiwan and starts preparing for invasion. We send off a carrier fleet as a deterrent. China shuts off our lights and our EVs. Heck, maybe even China stalls our aircraft carrier dead in the water since now the U.S. military thinks Chinese solar or batteries on Navy ships is a good idea. There's a code red facing humanity out there in 2023, and I assure you it's not CO2 levels in the atmosphere. But can we convince the G7 elite of the same? Climate change, yep, it's here, and it's been here for millions of years, but it's not killing us. Climate change policies are killing us, along with their distractions, which can serve up the next topical connection. I wrote in my book, Precipice, and I spoke many times on prior Far Middle episodes about how the Federal Reserve allowed its mission to creep into arenas that have nothing to do with monetary policy or the Fed's classic mandate, and the biggest example being the Fed's new obsession with tackling climate change. 
Well, I've got some surprising and frankly, some great news to report. A Fed governor is actually speaking common sense when it comes to climate change and the Fed's focus. Yes, Fed Governor Christopher Waller in mid-May said something that was shocking for a high-ranking bureaucrat in the federal government. Waller said, and I'm quoting him here, climate change is real, but I do not believe it poses a serious risk to the safety and soundness of large banks or the financial stability of the United States. Boy, how rational, how logical, and how correct. If only the rest of the Fed leadership and the bureaucrats would apply the same clinical sanity, including, of course, Chair Powell. They won't, and it's much more likely that Waller will be facing a prompt excommunication from the Fed as a heretic in the Church of Climate. Yes, Powell promises that the Fed will stick to its knitting, using his term, and avoid climate policymaking. That's the promise. But the actions show something different with the Fed. It's been the chief funding mechanism with its free money policies for the tackling climate change crowd for years now. And I bet the Fed builds the exact types of rules and framework to assess climate change risk on the banking system that Waller is basically calling useless. And any of you constant listeners, you want to bet me on that. I'm willing to offer some pretty favorable odds because it looks like too good of a fit for the Fed to resist. Yet for the Fed to take its eye off the growing macro headwinds facing our economy, it amounts to a dereliction of duty bordering on a moral as evidenced by the San Francisco Fed being massively distracted with climate change musings while Silicon Valley Bank was collapsing by the traditional banking risk route and creating panic in the financial sector. But the Fed has cover along with the whole of government because it preaches Code Red is the biggest headwind of all, the only headwind, so to speak, that matters. Now, a Fed governor speaking his or her mind on the record that questions whether the Fed's mission should include tackling climate change that runs counter to the extreme religion that is environmentalism, and it will likely result in a severe rebuke or worse, as I said, excommunication uh, from the club of the elite. Don't be surprised if the Fed governor has a change of heart soon, sort of what's referenced in the PR biz as walking back his comments. Uh, publicly, it comes with him saying something like what I meant to say, or I was taken out of context or, or something similar to those. And this is what our nation has become. It's a place where free speech is no longer protected unless it fits with the ideology of the left. And even left of center and liberal thought leaders are picking up on the obvious troubling trend. Now, writer Salman Rushdie, he knows how this works far too well. He had a bounty placed on his head years ago. It's hard to believe, but this was back. It started in 1989 by extremist Islamic religious leaders in Iran due to his book, The Satanic Verses. And then he went nearly years with that death threat over his head, and then he was nearly murdered on stage less than a year ago up in Chautauqua in upstate New York by an apparent extremist looking to fulfill that death warrant that was placed on him. Now, Rushdie made a public speech a few weeks ago in May, less than a year after that stage attack, and he warned that freedom of expression in the West is under its most severe threat in his lifetime. And this is coming from Rushdie, who has lived with a death threat for decades because of what he wrote. So for him to say attacks of freedom of speech are worse now than ever, now that's really saying something. Now, I said his speech was public, but he didn't appear in person, and who can blame him? Rushdie delivered the speech via a video for the British Book Awards, and he was awarded the Freedom to Publish Award. And uh, the definition of that award is to acknowledge the determination of authors, publishers, and booksellers who take a stand against intolerance despite the ongoing threats they face. Well, I think Rushdie might be the, uh, the perfect recipient for that type of an award.
Now, here's a great quote from that speech. Rushdie said, we live in a moment, I think, at which freedom of expression, freedom to publish, is not in my lifetime been under such threat in the countries of the West. That's a great quote. And he also criticized publishers, by the way, who change classic books from the past to conform with what certain segments of society today desire. So we've been reading a lot about that in the news lately, haven't we? Another great quote from that speech by Rushdie on that topic was, and if it's difficult to take, don't read it. Read another book. That's awesomely commonsensical. Now, I have two thoughts here, constant listeners. First, I wholeheartedly agree with Mr. Rushdie's comments. For me, frankly, it served as a major motivator to publish the NickDelius.com website and to write the book Precipice and to broadcast the far middle every week. But second, I wonder and I frankly question how committed self-described liberals are to defending freedom of expression and free speech in America today, including even I worry about Mr. Rushdie's commitment to that. So in other words, would Mr. Rushdie or a self-described free speech advocate would they want to protect or suppress speech that they disagree with from a political or cultural perspective? Now, I've stated many times I consider myself a classic liberal when it comes to individual rights and freedoms, which means I am a free speech advocate. Even if I disagree with the message or the speaker or the writer, I'm going to support their right to say what they desire to say. But that is not the norm with the so-called liberal elite these days. How many liberals would tolerate opinion pieces on the dangers of vaccines? I would, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. How about a talk from someone supporting gun rights? I would support it, and I'm not a gun user. Would a liberal support a religious leader who has opinions on, say, the morality of sexuality or abortion? I think they should be free to opine, and I'm not overtly religious, nor do I subscribe to much of what the devout preach. And I think I know why self-anointed liberals won't back free speech unless it conforms with their views. It's because these self-anointed liberals are not really liberals. They are instead leftists. And a leftist, whether they know it or not, is not of a tolerant or inclusive persuasion. A leftist is intolerant and exclusive. It's their way or the highway. You fit in or you get out. So I hope Rushdie I hope he's a true classic liberal and would support a person's right to express themselves through speech and writing or art. He knows more than anyone how a religion can be intolerant to the point of violent. And there are extreme religions out there today that don't meet in a church or in a mosque or in a temple. They meet in government and at colleges. We call them leftist, environmentalist, and socialist communist. And they can be more intolerant than any classic religion when it comes to aggressively crushing the individual, and his or her views. Now, what's doubly troubling is that free speech isn't the only vital foundation of our Western Republican democracy that's under attack by the left. Everything and anything that is vital to what is the essence of America is under continual assault, from the poorest to the most successful segments of society, actually to society itself. And this connects to another topic to discuss. That is what is happening to the area of America that's been under the control of the left for perhaps the longest and the deepest, which are our major cities. And in particular, I'd like to talk about what is going on in San Francisco or what Michael Schellenberger, the author, calls San Francisco. And I plan on reading that book soon, by the way. Um, The point with the city by the bay is that it illustrates how every segment of society suffers under the thumb of the left's cultural and economic and class wars. The poor are obvious victims, 
from homelessness to drug epidemics, both, by the way, brought on and made much worse by leftist policy. And then you've got crime and inflation that are add-on burdens to the poor. And you see the images and videos of what's going on in San Francisco. It's both heartbreaking and maddening at the same time. And the affluent, in fact, the uber-wealthy, they're not doing all that well themselves with the left in San Francisco. Many are leaving or they left, but some are staying, and some of those who are staying, they're frankly morally decaying and dying either from their own lifestyle or violently. And a much publicized and recent example is the downtown San Francisco murder of tech millionaire Bob Lee. He was stabbed one night on the streets and wobbled down a ways before he bled out. And what happened with the speculation that followed, I found it to be interesting. So first, a lot of people weighed in stating how Lee was a great guy and a dedicated family man, and of course, how his murder was a massive tragedy. And some, and I think Elon Musk might have been in this group, who I think might have known Lee, I'm not sure about that, but some weighed in on how his murder highlighted the out-of-control crime in San Francisco. Another victim, albeit a well-known rich one, versus the all-too-common instances of violent crime against the middle class or the poor. But then it came to light that the murderer knew the victim, Lee. It was an altercation between acquaintances, not a random street murder. The suspect was arrested, and then that's when the pushback came against people like Musk, who were lamenting the decay of the city. The pushback said, see, it wasn't random crime. You rushed to judgment about the events in the city itself. Well, perhaps. But it got me thinking, and by now you constant listeners know how these types of stories get me thinking as to what ails our great cities, and frankly, all of America. These days, it's not just a problem with a breakdown in public safety that leads to things like street crime. We've got other problems. So whether it's the lawless flash mob clearing out shelves at a drugstore or a random murder by a mentally deranged killer, those are certainly crisis-level issues and challenges in cities today. But we've got problems above and beyond those. And there are other additional breakdowns on the individual level, I'd call it, that cut across all demographics, including the most affluent in our society. And that takes us back to the Lee murder. Now, you read recent news stories on Lee. It was reported that he allegedly lived almost what most of us would consider a double life, successful tech titan and family man by day, but then at night, allegedly a partier, an alleged drug user, and allegedly engaged in promiscuous behavior. And one of the relationships that he was tangled in involved a married woman who had an unbalanced brother who also knew Lee. And one thing led to another when they met to discuss the relationship between Lee and the assailant's sister. And before you know it, the brother of the woman stabs Lee, killing him. Now, I read all this, and I see another breakdown in our society beyond the shoplifting and the random violent crime. And again, it's a breakdown of the individual and his or her ability to make sound decisions in life. Lee was obviously smart and successful and wealthy, and he had what looks to be a great family, and he was admired by basically everyone. Yet you have to wonder if he somehow lost his ability to filter right from wrong and live a rational, sound life, despite everything that he had going for him. Lee, to me, can be a potential microcosm and singular example of what's going on across our culture today, person by person and place by place. And I, I sort of view Lee and that tragedy as another form of collateral damage done by the left and its ideology. You got a successful husband and father who fell into a strange world that ended up being murdered. But one of the crucial points in this tragedy 
is what Lee was doing with the party and everything that came with it wasn't just viewed as socially acceptable in today's San Francisco by smart people who should know better, but it was viewed as cool and admirable and desirable. Look, I'm a libertarian, and I'm all for the individual to live their life the way they choose, and I'm sure as heck not a Puritan, but I'd like to think I know fundamental right from wrong and the consequences of choices and the responsibility of the individual to make good choices. A society across all demographics to the point where we believe culturally there are no consequences that come with personal choice. You know, do the smarter and the wealthier feel they are even more invincible and can act with no consequence? You know, I fear this is another societal symptom of the left's grip on our culture and society today. And again, it's a breakdown of fundamental norms of personal conduct and the consequences of poor choices. It's perhaps taken years or generations to play out to where we are today, but I sense the individual is bringing less self-discipline and personal accountability than what was expected or demanded a decade ago, and certainly a generation ago. And that is of major concern to your host. I'm gonna close with a connection to remind all of us that it was not always this way in America. Again, this episode first airs on June 21st. That marks the day in 1945 when Japanese troops were defeated on the Pacific island of Okinawa after one of the longest and nastiest and bloodiest battles of World War II. And the greatest generation, again, they lived through the Great Depression and they fought through a brutal World War II, including Okinawa. And they answered the call to a universal draft and it worked. You had men and women of every walk, race and class step up and answer the call. And that's not a, a generalized statement that lacks hard data backing. So let me give you a statistic that may shock you to highlight and contrast how individuals conducted themselves then to how things are today. Princeton's class of 1942 consisted of 683 students, largely from the wealthiest and most elite families in the nation. Yet 84%, 84% of those graduates from Princeton, from the class of 42, they ended up in uniform during the war. The valedictorian became an enlisted man. 25 of the graduates were killed in the war, most of them in combat. Now, they didn't fully understand how they fit in the military, but they went alongside fellow Americans their age who wouldn't even dream of college or imagine the privilege of the soldier in the foxhole next to them. We know we have what it takes because we demonstrated we had what it took. In 1942 at Princeton, in 1945 on Okinawa, and let's make sure we do all we can to protect the it factor that makes America special and that we rebut the insidious elements that are out there working constantly to erode the specialness that is the U.S. of A. I'll see you in a week.